live from the Imperial Theater in New York City, the League of New York Theaters and Producers presents the American Theater Wing's 1982 Tony Awards, which takes place right here on Broadway. Okay, welcome back to My Little Tonys. So now, after a year that we drug our heels through kicking and screaming <laughs> we finally get to talk about something that we want that we want to talk about so we're doing 1982 which is famous for the showdown between nine and dream girls before we get into it i want to give a little note about how we're going to split this up because in theory it would make sense to talk about both nine and dream girls in this episode but we learned the hard way that we really only have the time and the stamina to do like a deep dive on one show per episode um which i think is demonstrated in our 1964 episode where we did like 90 minutes on hello dolly and then like 15 minutes on funny girl Mm -hmm. so uh you may have noticed we've been like splitting up the two biggest shows between part one and part two so we're gonna do nine this episode because it won best musical and then we're gonna do dream girls next week but because of the nature of the season and how it was really like defined by this showdown, we probably will be talking a lot about Dream Girls in this episode, too. And also, if we did them both in this episode, next week would be very uh, underwhelming. <laughs> what? You're totally snubbing all the Pump Boys and Dinettes fans <laughs> out there. <laughs> you know, I actually did enjoy that performance, not knowing anything about this show. I was like, I could get on board with this. Yeah, so you have to listen to both episodes one and two if you want to get your your full fix of the drama. <laughs> but I think that this, I guess out of the like later, I guess this isn't necessarily later anymore. It feels later, but I guess out of the golden era, this was... You know, now that we're outside of the golden era of the Broadway musical, this is definitely a transformative and important year. Yes. So this Tony's, it was the 36th Annual Tony Awards, and it was broadcast by CBS on June 6, 1982, from the Imperial Theater, which was home of Dreamgirls. Um, the host was Tony Randall, which did he, he didn't introduce himself or get introduced, right? Or did I miss it? No. Also... He like pretends to be a theater critic in the beginning. Yeah, he's like playing a, this theater critic character. That's sort of his host shtick. Ah, good evening. You see, if we critics don't make notes as we go along, we're apt to forget our sharpest jibes before we get back to the typewriter. So all this scribbling is one reason you don't want to sit next to a critic in the theater. I was like, who is this guy? Yeah. I mean, like, I know the name Tony Randall, but I'm like not really familiar enough with his work to be able to recognize him by face well it's funny because i think that this you know coming as like an early 80s ceremony felt like such a mix between the 1975 tonys and the recent 70s i guess 78 where we talked about ain't misbehaving especially with this opening like i think that you know in the uh, in a similar uh, vein to 1975 you have this honoring of the theater of a specific theater and its ghosts then it was the Winter Garden, now it's Imperial. Um, but you also have this audience plant who um, is kind of our <laughs> our envoy for the evening. I want to come back to that. But before we forget, so the four best musicals this year were Dreamgirls, which had 13 nominations and six wins, Nine, which had 12 nominations and five wins, um, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which had seven nominations and zero wins, and Pump Boys and Dinettes, which had one nomination and zero wins. Um, but going back to like how this was like 1975, there was an interview with Hildy Parks, who I think was one of the producers of the Tonys, and she was talking about the reason that they did it this way. 
in the theater, we have an identity problem that the Academy Awards don't have, and God knows the Emmys don't have. Every now and then you get a season where you have an Ellen Burstyn, Liv Ullman, and Lauren Bacall up there for the big awards, but that doesn't happen often. This year, I can hardly think of anybody in any category that anyone outside the theater has ever heard of. In Iowa, they don't really know who Raul Julia is, and they certainly don't know who Karen Akers is. And the names of Michael Bennett and Tommy Toon, great as they are, do not mean anything to that great television audience. We have this problem with music, too. Dreamgirls, for instance, opened months ago, but its music hasn't really gotten across the country. So we do a lot of golden oldies that people have heard before. In past years, we've done a tribute to Ethel Merman or Richard Rogers to get familiar music on the show. Miss Parks began working on the Tony telecast last winter. In January, the network wanted to know what we were going to do, she said. We looked at the season, and it was like a disaster area. Merrily, we were all along had closed. The first had closed. There was no new musical in town except Dreamgirls at the Imperial. So we decided to do what we had done once before when we had this kind of season. We do the history of a theater. We did the history of the Winter Garden in 1975. We contracted 10 people to form a kind of singing acting company. But about two months after we signed everybody to a contract, suddenly the Broadway season came alive. Pump Boys and Dinettes moved uptown, and so did Joseph. And Tommy Toon decided to take nine out of workshop and rush it to Broadway. So now we have the history of the Imperial plus numbers from the four nominated musicals. It's going to be a tight show, if not long. And I think the Imperial tribute um, ended up being about 30 minutes of the show. It was long. And all of the performances were like kind of rather long, too. Not complaining, but (laughs) (laughs) I think I was surprised by it. Yeah, I think that kind of going off of that, there had been like a lot of fear. Like there was a Variety article uh, from the midwinter titled, B-Way season looms as worst in years. Um, And like they were like projecting that the numbers were going to be like way down and everyone was kind of worried, especially, you know, following up like a 42nd Street, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel like with Avita and 42nd Street the years before this, like there had been like real blockbuster energy that, you know, was missing. Dreamgirls was doing well, but Nine, they sort of talk about how it was kind of acting like a blockbuster, but was not a blockbuster at first. It was just kind of, you know, trying to project the image that it was giving Dreamgirls a run for its money. And it worked. They won. They won Best Musical. Well, and also to kind of going back to this theme about the theaters, the three Broadway theaters that um, had been to the like chagrin of a lot of the theater community. Yeah, three Broadway theaters, the Morasco, the Helen Hayes, and Bijou were bulldozed in efforts to make way for like a Marriott hotel. Yes, they are now the home of the Marriott Marquis, uh, most recently home to Tootsie. So it was all <laughs> worth it. Yeah, there's a very interesting um, curbed article sort of detailing the Fallen Five, and I think uh, the Victoria and the Aster were the other two. And it basically was like part of this effort, as you know, we've been talking about the whole time, sort of Times Square kind of becoming this very seedy and dangerous area in the 70s and then being totally disnified in the 90s. In between, in the 80s, there were efforts to kind of revitalize it by, you know, demolishing these theaters and putting up these new commercial structures. Um, And Joe Papp of the public was really kind of taking the lead on the effort to preserve them, but it didn't work. But the silver lining is that all of the attention paid to these theaters led to the Landmark Preservation Commission to turn all the other theaters into historical landmarks. So, you know, they had to die so the rest could live. 
Yeah. But, and it also, I think, led to this very, like, interesting, contentious Tonys. There was a lot of bitterness about, and, like, I think deserved bitterness about these theaters being demolished and the role that the uh, Schubert group played in that. I think that some people were under the impression that, like, the Schuberts own the Tonys. And there are accounts of people saying that they basically called every Tony voter, be, like, pretty much bullying them into voting for mean, uh, for Dream Girls. <laughs> <laughs> for dream girls oh, not man. mean girls but you know it is sort of interesting that that feels like it almost backfired and like nine didn't have everything that dream girls maybe had but like i think that the tony voters were like trying to like leverage their power in some ways totally you know it is contentious but i think that not having seen either show and only seeing the the bad film adaptation of nine i think that i feel like nine is my best musical winner yeah i mean it's interesting because i think they actually have a lot in common because i think they both have these amazing scores these legendary performances, iconic original productions by these like, you know, visionary directors. But I think when you get down to it, neither of them are really like that substantial. And maybe it's like a stupid argument to be like, well, if you take away the songs and the performances and the direction, it's like, what do you have? But I mean, I think both like just on a textual level, they do kind of treat their subjects in like a shallow way. I think that's something that critics brought up about both of them at the time like I don't think that's like a new take but I do think it's kind of fitting that they were up against each other even though they seem very different at first glance no I totally agree and I do think it's interesting that like for people sort of like our age and younger and like maybe even a little older than us just like whoever is like too young to have seen them in their original productions like I feel like Dreamgirls has really come out on top in our cultural consciousness because the movie version was much better (laughs) it had breakout hit song and I think the score is just like better known in general Um, and I think you know it has the best Tony performance of all time probably so I think like when people talk about the season through that view it's like how could nine have won but I think when you like look at you know reports of people who did see the season it is much more like it's just sort of a personal taste split history has a way of rewriting who the real winner was (laughs) like I think Dream Girls ultimately did, has come out on top, even though I also love Nine very much. Yeah, no, I to- I think I totally uh, do agree with that. Nine really felt like a sort of blind spot in my theater knowledge. And, you know, like I had never, besides like having a version of Linda Eater singing Unusual Way that I torrented <laughs> when I was, you know, like in middle school from LimeWire, like <laughs> I had not really known. I saw the film version in a totally empty movie theater. It was just... <laughs> me and my friend Kate Novick um, (laughs) when we were in high school that was really just my kind of experience coming into this like sort of deep dive into nine so I was really happy to be able to do it well I'm so happy that you have come out of it loving it so much because it's uh, one of my I think top 10 cast albums for sure I also think that something that this is like a general note and maybe is not where we start the discussion but I think that something that now looking back at a lot of books and histories of theater like a lot of people do lump it in uh, next to like Sunday in the Park with George and I think that like they also have a lot of very interesting uh, similarities it's true but I think Sunday in the Park with George is much more profound than nine (laughs) yeah like I don't I don't feel any kind of emotional connection with nine even though I love the music so much I like I don't really feel for Guido's issues at all do we 
want to talk about the Imperial Medley before we really get into nine? How do we want to do this? I guess let's talk about the Medley. I don't think we have to do it too detailed. My what from the season comes from this Medley, which is Cher coming out and doing My Heart Belongs to Daddy on oh, an iceberg. My God. I was not prepared for that at all. Nobody ever talks about that. And I was like, why is she there? And I looked it up and she had just done um, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean that season. But like they don't announce her. She like must be uh, 1982 is probably like the height of her fame. She gets very little fanfare. There's actually like a very um, amazing description of it in the uh, Michael Riedel. The tension in the Imperial was replaced by horror at the next musical interlude. Cher sitting on an iceberg and wearing a white for a coat and boots singing my heart belongs to daddy to a bunch of chorus boys dressed up as polar bears Cher started to strip and said you guys are so butch there never has was an explanation for why Cher sang and stripped with a bunch of gay polar bears at the tony awards in 1982 (laughs) you know some things don't need an explanation although i i do still ask what and my other highlight, I thought it was all pretty good. You know, I, I heard some stuff I liked. <laughs> but the, my other highlight was Leslie Uggams singing the hell out of Someone to Watch Over Me. Oh, night, be the man some girls think of as handsome to my You tell him, please, put on some speed, follow my lead. Oh, how I need someone to watch over me. When did she come back in 84 to do uh, If He Walked Into My Life? So Mm -hmm. she's really like the ringer that you bring in if you need someone to just like slay a ballad. Yeah. And also, I feel like the Ann Miller No Time at All performance was like, it felt like the energy from Sugar Babies was uh, back in town. (laughs) Alive and well. And I also thought they had Robert Preston singing You're Just in Love from Call Me Madam to a young actress. I don't know her name. I don't have it on Her hand. name is Pam Dauber. Pam Dauber. She really had like a young <laughs> Nicole Kidman energy. That song is much creepier when it's an older man singing to a younger woman than when it's an older woman singing to a younger man. Especially when he's like, you need a rub down with a velvet glove. I was oh, like, yeah. you're, you're in your 70s now. <laughs> like, leave her alone. Put your head on my shoulder. You need someone who's older. A rub down with a velvet glove. There is 
nothing you can take to relax that funny ache. You're not sick, you're just in love. You're not sick, you're just in love. There was like another moment where some, one of the presenters was talking about the young boys in Nine that I was I like, think it was, that was Robert Preston also, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and for Raul Giulia, as the distraught Italian film director, and for his stamina, being the only man surrounded by 22 beautiful women and about four very cute young fellas. <laughs> That's in nine. Also, I didn't know that I ever needed to see Robert Goulet dressed up like a Mountie, but it was <laughs> um, very good. Um, yeah, and that's from a show called Rosemarie that I had never heard of. I guess I get kind of curious about, like, do people... I guess, who thinks of theater history in, like, terms of, of like, a specific theater? I think a lot of people do. But, I yeah. mean, I don't, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't there that whole series of books that's, like theater history sort of theater by theater I mean I obviously based on the amount of times we've like gotten theaters wrong and people are quick to tell us not dissing it no, but no. I think that yeah I just like it's kind of like a curious thing you know these Broadway theaters that are hermit crabs that's a beautiful way to describe them one other thing sort of going off of the demolition of the theater, but I thought um, Milton Berle's whole like intro that he did was very funny. That seemed like a lot of it was improvised, although he did look like the Joker. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know how... What the hell? Don't tell me they're tearing this one down too. So, nine, opened May 9th, 1982. Closed February 4th, 1984, after 729 performances. Book by Arthur Copet, original Italian book by Mario Frati, music and lyrics by Maury Yeston, directed by Tommy Toon, dances by Tommy Walsh, based on Federico Fellini's 1963 film, Eight and a Half. Although, and you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I... I didn't know that part of the conditions of getting the rights to eight and a half was that he was like, you cannot credit me anywhere. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> don't say this was based on eight and a half. <laughs> Nine centers around Guido Contini, a famous Italian film director and ladies man. His last couple of movies have been panned by the critics and Guido is under pressure to make a return to form with his latest film. However, there is one major problem. He hasn't written a line of the script and has lost all inspiration. Guido's professional and personal lives become intertwined as he attempts to save both his career and his marriage. So it was nominated for Best Musical, Best Book, Best Score, Best Leading Actor for Raul Julia, Best Featured Actress for Karen Akers, Liliane Montevecchi and Anita Morris, Best Direction, Best Choreography, Best Scenic Design, Best Costume Design, Best Lighting Design. And it won Musical, Score, Liliane Montevecchi won Best Featured Actress, it won Direction and Costume Design. I think that this is a case where it got the awards it deserved. I agree. And I think what's funny is that this nine is both a great example of how to adapt a movie to the stage and a terrible example of how to adapt a stage show to a movie. <laughs> like, they got it half right. Yeah. <laughs> so it started its life with Maury Estin, the composer. He saw Eight and a Half when he was, I think, a teenager and he was obsessed with it and he was sort of... Uh, like turning over the idea of turning it into a musical for years. Um, and he started writing it in 1973. And then actually, our friend Edward Cleveland connected him to this guy, Mario Fratti, 
who, and this was something that is not mentioned a lot in the mythology of Nine. I thought this was very interesting. So Mario Frati had written this play in 1977 called Six Passionate Women, which was also based on Eight and a Half. Um, it's like basically the same premise. Mm-hmm. Cleveland was like, hey, you guys are both sort of working on this uh, same thing. You guys should work together. So they were developing that together for a while, but they parted ways um, over, I think, disagreements about the book. But, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. So then Tommy Toon got involved because Roddy lived in Tommy Toon's building and he slipped the cassette of the score under his door and he was like from your neighbor upstairs and Tommy Toon was like I love this I want to do it and the interesting thing about that is so at that point Tommy Toon was living in Michael Bennett's old apartment so like I feel like I was I'm curious if like they was slipped through the mail slot like thinking that Michael Bennett lived there but then I feel like I, I saw I saw some place saying you know that you know it was addressed to Tommy Tune but I feel like in several other accounts of it I thought that there was a possibility that it could have been meant for Michael Bennett Wow the plot really would thicken in that case Tommy Tune has a lot of like very beautiful um, descriptions of him him listening to that tape on a Walkman wall on Fire Island. <laughs> so they got rid of Mario Frati because I think it just wasn't working and they he brought in Arthur Copet because he had written a play called Wings which was about a woman recovering from a stroke and he said um, uh, I knew Nine had to inhabit the realm of Guido's mind it couldn't move like a regular linear play it had to inhabit Guido's head like Fellini's film and insist on and exist on several levels at once I knew that Arthur understood that method whatever it is which I thought was a, a, a funny way of um, I mean it's true but it's like and of the, I guess, the original book, he the uh, Frati book, he described it as opera buffa, which is a comic type of Italian opera with uh, characters drawn from everyday life. It's funny because I'm assuming, I mean, Mario Frati still gets a credit, so I'm assuming he gets some kind of royalty. But like, even though he got sort of unceremoniously fired, you know, Nine still follows him around because I was like looking at reviews of his what what is the play called six passionate women every review is like and you know he like it was the inspiration for nine it's like you know it's still it's part of his legacy still even though his contribution is kind of minimal and was not really what they what they wanted yeah he has also a very funny personal website Let's see. So Tommy Toon, first of all, I know we talk a lot about how crazy every theater person's memoir is. So I want to give a little shout out to (laughs) to Tommy Toon's footnotes, which first of all is like longer and thinner than your standard book, I think, in honor of its subject. (laughs) (laughs) Also, like the George Abbott book has no table of contents or index. So you kind of have to just like flip through to find what you want. And while I was flipping through to find information about Nine, I just like instantly landed on a page where he was like, me and Andy Warhol used to hang out and do cum facials. (laughs) But don't worry, they they each use their own. But anyway, so Tommy Toon, real eccentric, but he talks about it, about Nine, in a way that actually reminded me of our discussion of American Idiot, of all things. (laughs) Nine was a big success, but I was always aware of the smoke and mirrors that I'd created to divert the viewer from the fact that it lacked a plot. Nine was based on Fellini's film Eight and a Half, which had no plot either, but in a movie that's not terribly important, especially if you're Fellini, a master visionary. On stage, however, making lyric theater, a powerhouse plot is very important. Movies are dreams. Theater pieces need to portray life-altering situations. I didn't know this when I assumed the directing, choreographing reigns on Nine. I loved it immediately and committed myself to the project. Whoops, no plot. So, you know, you need a good story. Can't You can't coast by on vibes unless you're Tommy... Ta- 
Tommy Toon. Yeah, and I think to kind of jump off of that, like I don't think that I had ever really thought of Tommy Toon as like a visionary. Like I always <laughs> thought he was just kind of like a goofy, kind of like corny guy. And not to be superficial, but I think it's mostly based on like what clothes he wears because like he always looks like uh like a grandma who just like came back from las vegas (laughs) (laughs) you know he's really tall he probably doesn't have that many options no tommy toon gets all of his clothes made to fit i'm sure he gets i feel like he's always wearing like a flamingo pink suit and like huge sunglasses but i will say he is very handsome when he He is very handsome has his mouth closed Uh, (laughs) well there was one article that brought up that he was actually in an italian movie earlier in his career where he played like monica vitti's boyfriend and there's some pictures of him looking moody next to her where he looks very handsome so this is from ethan morden's sort of overview of the 80s 90s and 2000s the happiest corpse i've ever seen just a little bit about the sort of defining moments of nine like as a as a physical production Uh, Nine was Tommy Toon's breakthrough title, with a style entirely of its own category. Folks still speak of certain moments, such as the flashbulb that went off in Karen Aker's face on the tonic button of My Husband Makes Movies, causing her to flinch. Or the young Guido's presentation to Montevecchi during Folie Berger of a gift box that gave up a feather boa, unfurled to its full length till Montevecchi cried, Oh, I love it. Or the way the women, now changed into white with splashes of color, were strung out in a line for Every Girl in Venice is in Love with Casanova, as if rowing a giant gondola down a canal. Or Acres' determined exit after Be On Your Own, right up the stage left aisle of the 46th Street Theater, as if walking out of the play itself. So I saw other accounts sort of mention those individual moments, but I thought that was a good kind of summary of all of them. Yeah, I feel like not only has my opinion changed as him as like a visionary theater uh, director, but it is also amazing that he's really been on almost like every side of the stage you know he's been an actor he's been a director he's been a choreographer he's been a featured dancer he like pretty much did summer like every significant golden age musical in summer stock which i think is like has really informed his work as a creator i don't know i think i've come away with this with a lot of respect for him totally um and also just like more information about him as a as a true weirdo like they talk a lot about how sort of uh, like spiritual everyone. Oh my is. god! Yeah. <laughs> um, and here, so this season he also did a production of Cloud Nine by Carol Churchill about what appears to be his penchant for the number nine. Nine opened on May 9th. Mister Toon said, "People think we're being cute doing our names. We were working on nine before Cloud Nine came up. Besides, I'm a seven. That's my real number." He said, referring to his belief in numerology. His age, 43, he noted, adds up to seven. Every number has a meaning and an energy, he added. I mean, I think there's a lot in uh, Razzle Dazzle about, like, you know, the like the advertising team only being able to meet, like, on days that end in nine and, like, them, you know, doing all of these, like, crazy meditations and exercises during rehearsals. Yeah, it's, like, very Bushwick witch. Like, <laughs> um, no, there are some really good um, sections. And the woman who handled the, the press agent for nine is, like, a genius shark. And she's like, oh, yeah, like they were like all holding hands and like talking about crystals and being like, we can only meet on like a day that had nine in it. And she was like, meanwhile, like devising like the most amazing marketing plan ever. (laughs) The one other thing I want to mention about Mario Fratti's original play is that it has the seeds for the song A Call from the Vatican where it has him on the phone, supposedly with, um, you know, a Roman Catholic cardinal, but 
it's not clear who he's actually talking to, but he like has a woman in the room. So they sort of expanded that to become uh, Anita Morris's big showstopper. Is something wrong? Um, I'm not sure yet. It's uh, about my film. It's from the Vatican. Go ahead, Monsignor. Yeah, and also like an interesting thing with that, Maury Yeston in an interview was talking about, he claims that that was a Tommy Toon invention because he's like, you know, all these Italians are walking around with uh, phones in their attache cases. And like, (laughs) why doesn't he like have phone sex? And Maury Yeston (laughs) is like, and that is when Tommy Toon created phone sex. Oh, it's very innocent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I think the big thing about Nine that made it special is that um, so in all of the stages through the development until Tommy Toon got involved, it was sort of mixed men and women um, and they were having trouble casting some of the male roles with character actors. They were just like, nobody is right. And then Tommy Toon, I guess, like met with Liliane Montevecchi and he was like, she's perfect. We have to get her in the show. And then he was like, why don't we just make this producer character a woman? And then he was like, wait a minute, we should just make them all women, <laughs> which is like, it's, it's genius. I think that's what makes it work is that it's like, it is about this guy who's, you know, like a narcissist, like treats all the women in his life poorly, but it's like, it's all about the ladies. Yeah. And like, I think that that's like, like she came to them like pretty much like that emoji with like the big eyes and like the two fingers like touching each other (laughs) being like but you might know me from like my short stint in Hollywood but like all I want is to be a part of your show and they were like um well like can you say like they're like we don't know if she could sing if she could act or what so they're like yeah we'll like put you in like you'll like spice it up but then like apparently on one of the first days of rehearsals like Maury Yeston when they were working on uh like the overture he was like taking everyone aside to like get their vocal range to like see whose voice would like correspond to what instrument when they were singing their la la la's and he was like as soon as she opened her mouth like it was it felt like the first time i had heard edith piaf like it was just like this her voice was like unlike anything that like i had ever like experienced and she herself was a Follies berger dancer and that's where that whole show-stopping number came from What a showing of color, costume, and dancing. Not a moment in life could be more entrancing than an evening you spend a folie bergère. Folie bergère! Not a soul in the world would be in despair. When he is glancing at the fabulous stage, the folie bergère.
there's a long a little bit of a longer quote from him talking about how like that whole sequence came about so he talks about the following night I began what I thought would be a small and touching moment Lafleur oh and they also named the character after her which is amazing the yeah. character's name is also Lillianne Lafleur nostalgically begging Guido for a little something in his movie recapturing the allure of the Folie Bergère a little French tune but the critic was on stage and since she was there to observe the moment she would have to chime in with her own opinions what critic doesn't hence the critic's counter melody which is one of my favorite parts of mm-hmm. that song the trouble with Contini, he's the king of mediocrity he's the second-rate director who believes that he is socrates he never makes a movie or a picture or a flick he makes a film get it a film a typical italian with his auto and biography a mixture of catholicism pasta and pornography a superficial womanizing moderately charming latin fraud and then where to go? Obviously into Guido's fantasy. He gives Lafleur the stage and she does her nightclub act, waltzing herself into a 35-foot feather boa, after which showgirls descend to bring the number to a rousing finale. Yet there needed to be still more. Lafleur's dramatic motivation had to be her impassioned reaction to Guido's inane intellectual vamping. In his attempt to fabricate an idea for his movie, he hasn't got one, under pressure from her. The action begins in a graveyard. A man has been buried alive. His scratching and clawing poor fellow is caught in a terrible crunch. He's fighting his way to the surface. It's likely he'll never survive. He hardly can breathe and he's desperate to keep an appointment for lunch. An appointment for lunch? But that's absurd. It's humorous. Well, it sounds depressing. It does. This became the script, which begins the number, and by the end of the process, there was a 20-minute musical sequence in the show, unimagined by anyone before first rehearsal, winning Montevecchi the Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Musical. Bonsoir, <laughs> and thank you very much. Maman, t'es contente? My mother is looking at me. I have to tell you, it was Mother's Day when you opened the show, but in France, it's Mother's Day today. And this is the greatest pleasure you could give me. I thank you very much. Tommy Tune, thank you. More everybody, thank you. And thank you for accepting me. I'm so thrilled. I... Oh, bye. <laughs> example of like a really sort of special and unique performer uh you know inspiring the creators to to do her justice and like i feel like that also just like speaks to maury yeston like it just seems like jess was like 
filled with songs and like imagining like what was probably left on the cutting room floor for this like there's probably there's so much because like I feel like all of these stories are just this like really amazing synthesis of him and Tommy Toon working together and him being like well I guess like we just need to write a new song and like how about this and it's like oh this is great and perfect and yeah one more thing about Lillianne that I loved is that so they did uh you know a profile on the five big ladies with their showstoppers and she was like you know just like your stereotypical French lady she was like I go to ballet class two hours every day and I never drink water and I drink half a bottle of wine at each meal (laughs) yes bitch so the five important women were um, Anita Morris who we've talked about a little bit she kind of gives me Gwen Verdon Gwen Verdon vibes yeah she's like a a more sexual Gwen Verdon she's also someone who when I imagine her what she looks like in my head it's totally different from what she actually looks like (laughs) Yes, your feet but little brow Pinch your cheeks till you say ow And I can hardly wait to show you And then there was Shelley Birch, who plays Claudia and sings Unusual Way. Kathy Moss, who is highlighted in the Tony performance. She plays Sarah Gina, the prostitute. Be Italian. Be Italian. Take a chance and try to steal a fatty kiss. Be Italian. You rapscallion. When you hold me, don't just hold me, but and Karen Akers, who plays his wife. And Karen Akers had never acted. She was a cabaret singer, and Tommy Toon sort of fought to bring her in there. And she has such a unique voice. Like, she's really, she really brings a special quality to it. My husband makes movies to make them. He makes himself obsessed. He works for weeks on end without a bit of rest. No other way can he achieve his level best. Some men read books, some shine their shoes, some retire early when they've seen the evening news. My husband only rarely comes to bed. My husband makes movies instead. 
I feel like between Karen Aker's performance in Nine and uh, Laurie Beachman's performance in Joseph this season, like I had been introduced or like become aware of like two singers who I had never really, I guess in the case of Laurie Beachman, not known who it was, but like I think both of them like bring such like an interesting thing to the stage this season. It's true. And speaking of the five divas, so all of the star power in the show led to the sort of unique way that they recorded the cast album, which I think is part of what makes it so good. So this is a quote from Mike Berniker, who produced the album. So first of all, I think they only had about five hours to record the album, which, um, you know, normally, if you've seen the company documentary, it's usually an all day thing where they have the orchestra in there, they do one song at a time and sort of do however many takes you need to get it right. Mike Berniker says, essentially, a record producer's job is to solve problems. It's not enough to say that you have a particular way of making a record and you use that method every time. Every record presents different problems and each one requires a different scenario. In this case, we had a real problem. We had five major stars and my problem was to avoid the normal rivalries that existed between them. Doing the show song by song in the usual manner would only have made things worse as each actress becoming the center of attention might have tried to make too much of the situation. I told Maury that the only way to avoid this, in my opinion, was to go literally from the top and in effect record the whole show live. This was a rather daring approach, but the gamble paid off. As a result, everyone got away from their individual personas and functioned within the context of the show. And because of that, the recording acquired more of the life and spontaneity you get in a live performance. It really was terrific. At the end of the first run, we had 65 to 70% of the recording done. I made notes as we were going along about what needed to be corrected. But instead of doing retakes of the individual songs, I decided to do another run through of the entire show. A lot of producers would have just corrected what was wrong, but trying to polish a wrong take by going over a performance until it sounds right tends to make things static after a while. Anyway, I don't think that a record should be the perfect idealization of a song or of a performance. Music is never that way. If you capture in a cast album the truth of what makes a musical, then you've done your job as a producer. When we recorded Nine, we got on tape noises, things that were extraneous to the event, but I think the record has a pace and a life that you don't usually find in cast albums. To me, it was an experience that I will never forget. And I think that really comes through. Yeah, no, totally. It's funny because like there were just like so many different versions of the cast album where, you know, some of it was like cut down for the original vinyl. And then it was like the whole thing was released on tape. um, But then a CD was released with like some annotations made to that. And then from there, um, you know, we have what I'm sure, you know, all of us or what you would like stream or purchase today um, which is like a two disc set with everything that was recorded and I you know I don't always love dialogue on a a cast recording but here I really do me too I only like it if it's like sort of part of the flow of the song like if there's you know underscoring or if it's like a scene that's kind of like part musicalized Mm -hmm. and sort of goes in and out I don't like like separate dialogue tracks that are sort of like taken out of the next scene uh, Mm -hmm. taken out of like a book scene or whatever but I like this because it it feels like all of one piece and also everyone is giving like insane line readings especially Lillian everything (laughs) she says everything she says everything she sings is just like shouted (laughs) like but but it's, you know, it's, it's perfect. So there really is a script. Absolutely. Good. From now on, you will work on it with my associate producer, <laughs> Stephanie Necrophorus. She writes for Les Cahiers du Cinéma under the name Robespierre. <laughs> ah.
it's kind of like French Elaine stretch in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> well, and listening to like, you know, Cheetah uh, did the role in the um, revival 17 years ago. And I think that her take on like a French accent feels, you know, not thick enough. It feels like artificial. Yeah. <laughs> so Michael Riedel wrote Razzle Dazzle, the battle, the battle for Broadway, which is about sort of Broadway in the um, 70s and 80s, which we haven't referenced a ton of until this point but it was excerpted in Vanity Fair his chapters about this season if you want to read them it's a good read we relied heavily on them it's called Inside the Greatest Face Off in Tony Awards History so let's get down to the Tony race yeah Uh, first of all weirdly it seemed like William Ivy Long was like his main interview for this (laughs) section he gets his thoughts get referenced on everything but he did have a quote that was like Tommy had his head in the clowns but he is taller than everyone (laughs) so it opened very suddenly so Dreamgirls had opened early in the season which we mentioned and this came seemingly out of nowhere there was no out of town tryout it opened the night of the cutoff for the Tonys which was May 9th yes which was May 9th Yeah, so as you you mentioned, press agent Judy Jexina, she told Sam Cohen, Sam, listen, this is an esoteric piece. We got people on boxes singing la 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 la. We have to create some excitement. Opening on the 9th was gimmicky, but it meant that the reviews would be out on the morning of the 10th and the Tony nominations would be announced that afternoon. If, as Jexina expected, the show received many nominations, we would take over the newsstands. Jexina had other stunts up her sleeve. Her greatest weapons were the show's 21 striking women. Why not cover the front of the theater with life-size photos of them in their black costumes? I wanted to seductively represent what was going on inside the theater, she said. I didn't want cute little tap dancing photos. I wanted sex. (laughs) There was one hitch, however. The costumes had yet to be made. All that existed were long sketches on his napkins. I had to make 27 costumes in two weeks, Long recalled. I've never worked under such pressure in my entire career. We were killing ourselves. Long brought his 27 dresses to the photo shoot, which lasted 23 hours. Two days later, at 7.30 a.m., workmen started covering the front of the 46th Street Theater with life-size photos of the gorgeous women dressed in black. Everyone except Anita Anita Morris, whose costume had been rejected because Toon didn't like it. She was represented by a giant headshot. At 11 a.m., Jaxina received a phone call from a friend. Traffic was tied up on 46th Street. Drivers were stopping to look at the photos, and there were five camera crews from local TV stations shooting the front of the theater. Nine had yet to play a performance, and already it was news. You know what those photographs were, Long said. They were a fuck you to dream girls. A few nights later, Toon, exhausted from a marathon rehearsal at the New Amsterdam, was about to climb into bed when the phone rang. Darling, Michael Bennett said, you have to go out of town with your show. That's what we do. I know, but Michael, we don't have any money. We can't afford to go out of town, Toon replied. But darling, you must go out of town, Bennett insisted. You will go out of town, and I will help you, and you'll come in the fall. It's not possible, Michael, Toon said. We have no money. We have to open now. You will go out of town, do you hear me? Bennett hissed. You will go out of town. Bennett's tone frightened Toon. He was, he remembered years later, black. It was the devil. It was mafia-like. He had become the thing he feared. I can't talk to you, Michael, Toon said. I'm sorry. I have to go. He hung up the phone and stood in the kitchen shaking. His friend, who had once told him, never fear, never fear, had frightened him. To sort of add to that drama, uh, I didn't realize that Tommy Toon's big break was in Seesaw, which was a Michael Bennett, you know, wrote, directed, choreographed. So they were they were close. Yeah. And like Michael Bennett was actually four years younger than Tommy Toon. But Tommy's like, he was my mentor. And what's really nice now is that I read like an interview from probably 2004 with Tommy Toon. And I think he has forgiven Michael Bennett. (laughs) Well, I mean, Michael Bennett 
has been dead for a long time. So it's like, what are you going to hold a grudge against a dead guy? Yeah. But I mean, when they cut to them, I was thinking during when they're announcing best director and they cut to them in the audience, like they both look like such sweet little boys. And it's like, you have no idea what's like, what's been happening behind the scenes. They were like separated from different sides of the stage. It was like very uh, dueling houses. There's a lot of details about like sort of the lead up to the Tony war, the Tony nominee brunch at Sardi's, like the dream girls cast was dominating the room and Jack Cena was like Anita Morris should just like go in through a back exit and be like hi I'm here and everyone like was like oh you know yeah she's like get on the table and do your Marilyn Monroe thing (laughs) yeah so here's a little more from Razzle Dazzle about how heated the competition was John Wilner, an ad executive who worked on Nine, said the war between the shows affected everyone in and around the industry. I'm not making a joke here, but if the Schuberts went to this deli, then the Nine people wouldn't go to that deli. That's how bad it was. And it was quite serious. You couldn't kid about it. You couldn't laugh about it. You could not walk into the Schubert audience and say anything remotely nice about Nine. And you couldn't walk into the Nine office and say anything remotely nice about Dreamgirls. So the Schuberts supposedly offered Sam Cohen a million dollars to delay the opening of Nine. The Schuberts lobbied Con Ed to, you know, withhold the power to the 42nd Street Theater. You know, the Schuberts were saying that Cohen was sort of playing up those rumors to make the Schuberts look bad. The producers of Nine didn't at first think that they could topple Dreamgirls. The Schuberts had a solid block of votes that consisted of Schubert employees and other Schubert loyalists. In addition, there was a sense that we had crossed the Schuberts and we would pay for it, Lafrac recalled. And then one day she ran into a woman who she knew was firmly in the Schubert block. The woman who to this day she will not name said to her, they think I'm voting for Dreamgirls, but I love nine and I'm voting for it. Don't tell them. I feel like that feels like a very like Sex in the City inspired. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I guess, you know, there were a lot of people who felt that way because nine did ultimately take it. And it's funny, too, because I think that not only was nine worried about you know, the Schubert's kind of having the Tonys in the bag, but they also, the reviews were mixed. They were more mixed than I thought that they were going to be. They were mixed, but they, uh, they were marketing it like it was a hit and it, it worked. Yeah. I mean, and it's like, I guess like there were no like overall pans, but you know, Frank Rich's review is less than by the end of it. I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is like kind of a bad review. <laughs> yeah. And Walter Kerr uh, wrote a very negative column about it where he called it very gimmicky. From top to close. Yeah. But, you know, it had its fans. Liz Smith, the Daily News gossip columnist, loved it, who's also a gay Texan. Um, (laughs) something I had always wondered because I always kind of felt like this Tony performance was a little bit underwhelming especially compared to Dreamgirls which you know it's hard to to live up to that but apparently they wanted to do a call from the Vatican but so the producers had wanted Anita Morris to perform the steamy a call from the Vatican but CBS's office of standards and practices in the form of two nice middle-aged ladies Jacksina dubbed Miss Marmalstein and Aunt Pity Pat raised some <laughs> objections they saw nine and met with Toon and Jacksina the next morning in the lobby of the 46th street Aunt Pity Pat opened her spiral notebook it was she said up to Toon to decide which number he would put on at the Tonys but consulting her notebook she said if he chose a call from the Vatican there could be no nipple rubbing no self-fondling of breasts no gyro rating on the box after doing a split, no rubbing of the inner thigh, and no audible sounds of ecstasy. Aunt Pity Pat closed her notebook and said, thank you very much for your time and please let us know. 
Toon and Jaxina looked at each other and said, let's just do be Italian. <laughs> and that's funny, too, because following this, there was a commercial where Anita Morris was basically like, yes. so this is the costume I wasn't allowed to like wear on TV. Nine, 1982 Tony Award winner Best Musical presents Anita Morris. I have to sit in this position because my costume has been censored from television. <laughs> In fact, my whole number in nine was censored from television. So if you want to see what I do, and I do it very well, they tell me, excuse me, you'll have to come to the 46th Street Theater to see the musical Nine. I'll be waiting. For tickets, call Charge It. Truly genius marketing. Yeah, the commercial is really good. The Tony performance is good, but I think it's like a little misleading of what I think that part of why I never was particularly interested in nine was I remember on one of those like Broadway's greatest treasure DVDs with like old Tony performances on it I remember seeing this performance and being like oh like I don't care about this I mean I would do if it were if I were putting it on I would actually do what they did at the 2003 Tony's which was do a little bit of the overture And then do Guido's song. I can hardly stay up, and I can't get to sleep, and I don't want to wake tomorrow morning at the bottom of some heap. But why take it so seriously? After all, there's nothing at stake here, only me. I want to be young, and I want to be old. I would like to be wise before my time, and yet be foolish and brash and bold. I would like the universe to get down on its knees and say, Guido, whatever you please, it's okay. And if it's impossible, we'll arrange it. That's all that I want. But I then I learned that a lot of sort of the buzz around Nine was that people didn't think that Raul Julia was like strong enough to carry the show. So I can see why maybe they wouldn't want to highlight him too much. I mean, it's a good song, but I, I also think it's kind of a strange choice. Yeah, because it also... I think it kind of like touches on like the most confusing aspect of it, which is like the flat, like I don't, or maybe that's the wrong phrasing of it. I just think it doesn't give like a good sense of like what the show, what's actually going on in the show or like the overall tone of the the show. But yeah, I don't think you want to highlight the little boys (laughs) in my opinion, but I do like the parts at the end where the, um, all the ladies get involved. Also, for the movie version, uh, Fergie performed the part, and she recorded, like, a club version of Be Italia. Be Italia. Be Italia. Take a chance and try to steal a fiery kiss. Be Italia.
the best part of that movie. I do want to talk about the movie a little bit because it was so bad. But like, I sort of see where their logic was with it, where they were like, well, this show is really theatrical, like basically a concept musical. So like, maybe we should go back and make it more like the movie, the original movie. But then it's like, you're just doing a remake of eight and a half with like a couple of songs shoved in there. Yeah. It's like, that's... But I feel bad for poor Judy Dench. Like between this and Cats, she's really had a tough time with her movie musical movie musical adaptations but the one thing that is like surprisingly good was kate hudson sings a song in the movie uh that was written for the movie cinema italiano yeah i hate that song um i love it it reminds me of a song that ashley tisdale would sing in high school musical yes i love the dark and handsome guys with the skinny little ties just mud looking out of sight i love to watch them as they cruise with the pony leather shoes wearing shades in the middle of the night whatever guido does it makes me smile he is the essence of italian style I mean, I don't think it's bad, like, on its own, but just the fact that they, like, cut half the score and, like, that was the song that they were like, this is really important to be in there. Oh, and we forgot to mention why it's called Nine. So Mr. Yeston called his show Nine, by the way, partly because of an important reference in both the film and musical to Guido at the happy age of nine, partly as a Fellini-esque joke. When Fellini made Eight and a Half, he had already done seven films and a documentary, Mr. Yeston notes, so he called his next movie Eight and a Half. I thought, if you add music, it's like half a number more. Aw, that's so sweet. (laughs) I didn't like get that like because the character in the movie isn't named is named Guido like they have different last names but like I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't really truly understand that like Fellini was like I don't want my name associated with it <laughs> which because like I feel like Sweet Charity is like my theory is that like after uh, Sweet Charity was based off of Knights of Cabria that he uh, was like, I don't want my name floating around on Broadway anymore. (laughs) Alongside that, it seemed like there was some very complicated issues with the rights where like they didn't actually get the rights, the full rights until like a week before preview started or something. There was a lot of like flying back and forth to Italy and being like, oh, wait, we need another signature. (laughs) Like very chaotic. And like, it's interesting because Maury Yeston makes a really good point. Like when he's talking about it, he was like, you know, I was in BMI workshop and like we had to, you know, start writing something. And I was like, this is like what I wanted to write. And he's like, I knew that there was going to be no way that I would ever get the rights for it. But I had to keep, I like had to just work on it. And like, he was like, it was like a student project. So, you know, who cares if like it would come through? He has this like really nice quote there's like a german classical music uh foundations of music composition philosophy book it's like a dialogue between a student and a teacher and the student asks the teacher if borrowing is allowed and the teacher said borrowing is allowed as long as you pay it back with interest and in maury Eston's like you know i was borrowing a lot of themes and like nuance from the Fellini film but like I feel like I really made it my own and like understood that I couldn't just like add musical music and dancing to like a two and a half hour long like Italian film no I mean I think I think they did a great job yeah also the other thing that um kind of stands out to me is that the score for eight and a half is itself like really special you know almost to the point where like I think it 
feels like uh, like a cliche of like what we would think like an Italian film score sounds like. <laughs> um, but Nino Rota composed that music, and you know, I think in a lot of ways, the like excellent work done scoring that film probably led to like Morieston seeing it and like realizing it as a musical. Totally. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's all I have for this. Do we need to say more? The one kind of nice thing I saw in this uh, interview with Tommy Toon, the interviewer asked him if he had seen the recent revival, like David Luvo's recent revival of Nine and like what his thoughts were about it. And Tommy Toon said, I didn't want to go see it because I had treasured memories of the original production. My partner had produced Nine and had died. The late Raul Julia had been my muse on it. I would make him sit with me in the audience so he would know about directing because he needed to be able to direct those women. I had had 20 years of love for that production and I never wanted to touch it again. It was done. I didn't want to go. And then Maury Yeston called me and said, I want you to come and David Laveau wants you to come as his guest to the opening. So I couldn't say no. I was just a mess getting ready. I don't want to see this. I don't want to go there again. It's going to be so painful. Sometimes I run from high emotions in my life. I would just rather skip it. I've had so much loss in my life. People older than me, a lot of people younger than me. When the first wave of AIDS came, it was devastating to me. Michael Bennett was younger than me, and he's gone, and so many people that I danced with in the chorus. But I went, and the moment that that little boy climbed up onto the table, and his shadow was on that screen, I was a goner. I loved it, and I can't believe the originality of David Luvo. He didn't do one thing that I did. I don't know how he avoided it unless he studied what I did at the film archive at Lincoln Center, because surely sometime he was going to do the same thing just logically. But everything was totally, totally his own and original, and I was so impressed and very moved to visit it all again. I am a huge fan of it. I don't don't like shows that look like other shows or borrow from other shows. I like originality. Oh, that's very, that's very uh, generous of him. Yeah, I know. Like how many larger than life personalities would like say that, say something nice yeah. <laughs> about the person working on their thing. I think that's it. You know, if you haven't listened to this cast album, just do it. It's, it's really good. the only other show we're going to talk about this episode is joseph we probably could have crammed another one in here but you know it's too late now (laughs) we only prepared these two so joseph and the amazing technicolor dreamcoat opened on january 27th 1982 and closed on september 4th 1983 after 747 performances uh music by andrew lloyd weber Lyrics and book by Tim Rice, and directed and choreographed by Tony Tanner, based on the coat of many colors story of Joseph from the Bible's book of Genesis. For those who are not versed in the Bible, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice musicalized the biblical story of Joseph, a young man whose brothers are jealous of their father's favoritism towards him and the beautiful coat he receives as a gift. 
They sell him into slavery in Egypt, telling their father he had been murdered. But he ultimately becomes important to the pharaoh through his ability to interpret dreams. This was nominated for uh, seven Tonys and one zero. The seven that it was nominated for were Best Musical, uh, Best Book of a Musical, Best Original Score, Best Featured Actor in a Musical for Bill Hutton, uh, Best Featured Actress in a Musical for Laurie Beachman, Best Choreography, and Best Direction of a Musical. When we talk about category fraud, I feel like this is uh, some ca- category fraud. Well, I think everyone had to know that Jennifer Holliday had it all locked up. So it's like maybe we can get Lori Beachman in there and the nine ladies might split the vote. I mean, that makes sense yeah. to me as a strategy. I mean, it makes sense as a strategy, but it's just not right. No, it is not right. One, Lori Beachman literally sings through the whole show, <laughs> not a featured actress. And the show is called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and therefore he is the main actor. <laughs> so this was not a show that I knew a ton about, but in retrospect, knowing now that I know its origins, it does have a very theater for young audiences vibe, which is which is how it began. It began as a 15-minute work for a children's chorus in 1968. It was kind of like the uh, the end-of-the-year pageant for this middle school. I don't really know the UK translation into, like, school, upper and middle in schools, but it was written for students under the age of 18. So, yeah, it was, like, kind of the the end-of-the-year pageant, and, like, apparently all the parents... Around 2 p.m., a gaggle of 200 or so parents, mostly mothers, as it was a weekday afternoon, gathered with no particular sense of anticipation in the rather cramped entrance hall of Colette Court School. Conversation centered on their fervent hope that this special end-of-the-term concert of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat was short enough for them to drive their children home before the weekend rush hour. One young mum commented that Johnny Cash was marrying June Carter that afternoon, U.S. time. They were probably surprised after they were ushered onto those hard low chairs you can only find in school halls by what they were going to see on stage. The concert was a total blast. The yummy mummies <laughs> forgot about the weekend. You know, <laughs> forgot about the re- weekend rush hour, and virtually the whole 22-minute cantata was encored. Everyone loved Tim's Elvis. I think Tim Rice played uh, Pharaoh, who's modeled after Elvis. Everyone loved Tim's Elvis impression as Pharaoh, but it was the piece as a whole that was the star. Some mothers clamored for a repeat performance on another day so that their other halves could hear it. It's kind of crazy how short it was, and it's kind of interesting to like hear how you know they kind of like had to build it up to be like a full-length thing i mean it is a it is funny to imagine like based on how many bad sort of like school concerts and plays with original music that i've like both attended and been a part of like can you imagine showing up to one and having just like banger after banger i can imagine that everyone lost their minds yeah and like in like his book he's just like yeah we kept it really short because children have like small attention spans (laughs) but like i think that it was like surprising even if it were good I can't imagine being like we have to like perform this again because your dads need to see it (laughs) but yeah eventually you know they got like a deal to record it so they made an LP but like the snag was that there was only really one side of an LP like they didn't have enough material for like a full record so like from there um, you know they started elaborating more that's when they wrote the song about Potiphar which um, for those Tim fans at home (laughs) I uh 
was in 2005 played Potiphar in an eighth grade production of <laughs> Joseph. And then they wrote the Go, Go, Go Joseph song. So yeah, it just kind of all came together. And also while Andrew Lloyd Webber was writing these new songs, Cabaret had just opened in the UK. So he was like kind of working with like a record executive to kind of like flush out a full record. And he writes, my stock with the great man got even worse when he opined that he had been to the opening night of Cabaret and that it had no hit songs and was an average musical at best. I had seen it in preview and aside from the subplot with a boring song about pineapples, microaggression, um, I thought it was great, flamboyantly directed by a name I banked, Hal Prince, and with sensational performances by Judy Dench and Barry Denon. I told Nori that I thought it was the best thing I had seen on the London stage since Callus in Tosca. Even if that was absurdly comparing apples and oranges, Cabaret opened my eyes to a new seamlessly way of staging that chimed with my growing certainty that musicals could be through composed. So yeah, it's kind of interesting to see at this time that he's kind of elaborating Joseph that he's getting inspiration about, you know, how to kind of like advance his form that is interesting you wouldn't necessarily put cabaret as one of the inspirations behind joseph yeah especially because when they were looking for an idea for like the 20 minute concert they were like looking through like a children's bible picture book and they're like this is great because like you don't even need to read so it's like really funny to think of like something that's so like pedestrian and elementary versus like something that's like kind of highbrow and whatnot but Speaking of, uh, you know, people we know in productions of Joseph, my first exposure to Joseph was seeing my sister Isabel at age probably seven or eight as the non-featured ensemble in a production uh, at theater camp. <laughs> but you know what? Even though it's pretty stupid, like if you if you don't get your blood pumping listening to Go Go Joseph, I don't know what's wrong with your blood. I guess that's like a really good point because even in Frank Rich's critics pick for it, he was like, this is like an excellent thing to see as like a matinee with your family. But like, this isn't like the fair um, <laughs> that you like really want to be spending a hundred dollars on. Well, it's interesting uh, that he mentions that it, first of all, it's 90 minutes, which I think was uncommon for shows to be that short at this point. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was it also was. cheaper than um, a regular musical, which is not the case anymore. A 90 minute show is going to cost cost you the same amount as a two and a half hour one it was 90 minutes and had an intermission which is funny because i think that in the discussion of nine they like wanted to perform it without an intermission and there's like there's no way that you can like keep people but it's like get rid of the intermission in joseph and then put the intermission in nine yeah. and call it a day yeah <laughs> well you know if you got kids there you gotta let them run around for a minute but it is kind of funny because you know obviously this probably gets uh, really looped in to discussions of like Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar. But it was funny because like at this time, there was also a musical about St. Francis of Assisi <laughs> being like <laughs> milled around. But yeah, so this production of Joseph was also running off Broadway and was bumped up to the main stage following like two years where it was like performed at the holidays at uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music as sort of like a, you know, winter spectacular type of thing in his memoir andrew lloyd weber doesn't really make that much noise about it getting um bumped up to broadway 
The one really interesting thing that I saw in like an earlier version was in 1973 in the West End, they had thought of like stretching it out by like having like it be like a variety show where the first act was called uh, Jacob's Journey, which kind of like filled in the biblical story up until this point. But it wasn't really like in the same style as Joseph. Well, I mean, it, it has had some funny sort of evolutions. I was trying to figure out who Laurie Beachman reminds me of, and I thought it was the elf woman from The Dark Crystal, but now that I'm looking at her, I don't know if that's what I'm thinking of, but she she does look a little um, like otherworldly. Yeah, Andrew Lloyd Webber says, with the late great Laurie Beachman as the narrator, Laurie's performance was so definitive that from then onwards, the narrator has usually been played by a woman. She just, she's so good in that Tony performance, which is an absolutely insane performance. It feels like everything is very fast in it. Is that true? It seemed faster. I think that that's a lot faster than the versions that I'm familiar with. But maybe Um, when children are doing it, they slow it down a little bit. So I've probably listened to like every cast recording of this besides the Broadway cast recording, um, partly because the album cover looks really weird and like I always kind of avoided it. But (laughs) I do. This this is like a lot fast. The Jacob and Sung song is like a lot faster than it usually is performed. But she just comes out there belting her little face off. It's amazing. Way, way back many centuries ago. And um, in his kind of like dissection of her, Seth Rudetsky has a really uh, points out a really great moment on the cast recording where in the Potiphar song, like she does this thing where she's like, And apparently, like, the music director was like, Lori, like, that was excellent. But, like, you can do it a lot better. And, like, this is going to be, like, something that people are going to be listening to for years. And, like, you can, like, make this better. Oh, so, Yeah, I would say that this is definitely, like, the, one of the most unhinged Tony performances. <laughs> are they doing the mega mix? Is that what this song is? Like, this combination of songs is? Like, when they come back and do all the little bits at the end? Or is it just a regular medley? I don't know. I think it's just a regular medley. Okay. But like, I think that there have been like several times on the course of this podcast where I have like wanted there to be like a mix of like a bunch of like pretty much perform like every song in the show, a little bit of every song from the show. And this does it and proves how crazy <laughs> it all is. But, you know, they tried it. And I think it does give a good sense. Like everybody is wearing a lot of different types of costumes and I mean that's sort of the whole thing about Joseph is that it's like a pastiche of all like every song is sort of a different musical style and uh, I think the costumes kind of reflect that lack of unity in what's happening yeah it's kind of crazy to think that like you know just because of everything that happened like this kind of falls in between like this is like sandwiched between Avita and Cats for like Andrew Lloyd Webber's like adventures on Broadway yeah Cats is really looming like a lot of people are talking about it it's uh incoming next season and there's also a very well-known I think is it the 1999-2000 film adaptation with Donny Osmond which is very good I think starring Maria Friedman as the narrator put it on for your kids if you want them to be quiet 
for an hour. I think so. I think that that's like a movie musical that I really love. I never, I don't think I ever watched it. I, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I guess it's Old Testament, but you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of uh, religious media. It's like very stagey with how it's shot. Right. And it, I guess another interesting thing is that like at this point, him and Tim Rice are like on the outs with each other. Tim Rice is like, yeah, like I would like to talk to my old friend, Andrew Lloyd Webber, but he's always surrounded by an entourage. It's very Franklin Shepard Inc. Oh, I didn't even think about how this was Merrily We Roll Along season, but it is. I always forget that. Not only was this, not only was Merrily We Roll Along also this season, but Little Shop of Horrors was off Broadway and it sort of comes up um, with people being like, well, this is a pretty bad season for the Broadway musical, but Off-Broadway is like the best musical I've seen in years, which is Little Shop of Horrors. And actually, Howard Ashman directed like an early workshop presentation of Nine. It was red and yellow and green and brown and scarlet and black and ochre and peach and ruby and olive and violet and fawn and lilac and gold and chocolate and mauve and Oh, I do have one other thing from for sort of the Tonys overall, because I think we spend a lot of time sort of trying to puzzle out like the finances of the Tonys and Razzle Dazzle actually goes into it a little bit because I remember recently we were like, is it a benefit? <laughs> so after Dreamgirls lost, so this is about Alex Cohen, who produced the Tonys. So the Schuberts were on a friggin' rampage after Dreamgirls lost, and they audited the Tonys. Before the theater battle, Schoenfeld and Jacobs let Cohen do whatever he wanted with the Tonys. They looked the other way, said Sabinson, but now they wanted to know just how much he was taking out of the awards. Sabinson, with the Schuberts' blessing, ordered a forensic accounting of the Tonys. The conclusion of the accountant, you guys are really getting screwed. Cohen was getting $2 million from CBS to produce the show, a small portion of which he kicked back to the league. But the league was buying most of the tickets to the telecast and the Tony Ball, with prices ranging from $250 to $500, and was losing anywhere from $50,000 to $100,000 on the event. Cohen claimed he too lost money on the Tony Ball, but the accounting revealed he was making money every year. Producers who had paid $500 for their gala tickets were irritated one year when Cohen served them kidney pie for dinner. It's cheap but tasty, Cohen said. Cohen also <laughs> Cohen also pocketed advertising money from the Tony Playbill, estimated to be tens of thousands of dollars. Neither the League nor the American Theatre Wing, a nonprofit organization that created and administers the Tony Awards, received a cut of the advertising revenue. So there's a, a little another little piece of the puzzle. Which uh, is, I find even more confusing, but I don't really have a head for that sort of thing. Yeah, neither do I. <laughs> um, but, you know, Alex Cohen was running a little scam there. Um, okay, I, I think uh, I think that's it, I guess, right? Yeah. So next week, we got our other big player, Dreamgirls. Um, then we have Pump Boys and Dinettes, which got its one courtesy Best Musical nomination. And... Also, this like very long and crazy uh, production of the life and adventures of Nicholas Nickleby. Yes, and that did that did very well, Tony Wise. And then that'll be the end of our season. So I guess we'll be talking about that too. Yeah, we'll we'll have some reflections. Yeah, we did it. I guess we haven't done it yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we shouldn't pat ourselves on the back yet. But until then, you can 
Follow us on social media at My Little Tonys. You can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. Um, and side note, if you DM us on Instagram, I feel bad because there have been some DMs that we haven't seen for a while because they don't give us a notification. So if we take a little while to get back to you, uh, we're not snubbing you. We just didn't see it. And we love to hear from you. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's it. See you next week. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye.